0: This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order and I will tell you that code in just a moment but I want to do another product highlight and I can testify as with the other ones through personal experience. I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago. And I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there. So some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old worn frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and... Some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts. So they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, They have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. Welcome, guys, to episode 252 of Behind the Show podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and I am so honored to bring you my next guest, who, as you will hear, is probably one of the most resilient human beings I've had on this show. Bonnie Vandera is a paramedic. Um, She had the fortitude to realize as a paramedic that she needed to be in better shape and was on a journey to become marathon runner. In the midst of that, she was basically the victim of an attempted murder from her paramedic partner. So you will hear how horrendous the attack was. She was shot, she was beaten, and still managed to drag herself away from that attacker to safety to find help and then begin an amazing journey of recovery, obviously mentally and physically, from her injuries. So as I always say, please take a moment to go to your podcast app, subscribe to the show, which will give you the alerts when a new episode comes out. Take a moment to leave a rating if you haven't done yet. Five Star obviously is the best. It gives us the most exposure when people are looking for us on these podcast platforms. And then most importantly, share. Word of mouth, email, social media, pigeon, whatever you need to do. But these stories need to be heard by everyone around the world. And Bonnie's is definitely one of those that I think will inspire every kind of human. So with that being said, I introduce to you Bonnie Vandera. Enjoy. Bonnie, I want to start by saying thank you so much for actually for for reaching out um, to connect with me because it was it was amazing um, to hear your story and I, and sadly like many of these people I've had on the show you know y- you are aware of the news article but to actually get to to speak to a fellow first responder who's obviously been through some trauma as you have um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Thank you. All right. So first question: Where on planet Earth are we finding you today?
1: <laughs> in a uh, small-town America in Vanita, Oklahoma.
0: Brilliant. Okay, so where were you born, and what was your family unit like?
1: Um, I was born in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Um, And then, well, it's just me and my twin sister. And then we, like, moved around Michigan growing up, and then when we were in junior high, we moved to Indiana. And... That's where he graduated from and all that jazz, but, um, growing up wasn't easy. It was like a very, uh, narcissistic environment, put it that way. Um, so anyways, we grew up and then we went off to college and, you know, of course, moved out and all that normal stuff. Um, and then... Well, hang on, back up. When I was in sophomore in college, I took a first responder um, course, and that's when I knew I wanted to, you know, be an EMS, and that's where it started. And that was in nineteen ninety
0: seven. Brilliant. Now, just to, just to go back for a moment. So, what did your parents do? What did your mom and dad actually do as a career themselves?
1: Um, they were both teachers. Mom taught like music type of stuff, and dad. Did history and English, yeah.
0: You know. oh, okay, you said your your father was an army medic before that. Was that right?
1: Yes, he was a medic in the air force. Air,
0: air force. Okay. All right. All right. Because I know I know that you know there's some things that happen after you you had your event um, that reflected kind of poorly on them. Was when you were growing up was was there anything that you can attribute to that that, that when their child needed them the most they weren't there?
1: Um, just that that's the way it was, you know, growing up too. um, when it was after my sister and I moved out, but we were still all living in the same area. I had emergency gallbladder surgery on a Sunday morning and their priority was to go to church. Um, so they didn't even come, come to see you or whatever until Sunday afternoon sometime. So, I mean, it was, it's just the way they've always been. To some extent.
0: Right. So did you and your sister kind of lean on each other then for that that missing part?
1: Yeah. Yeah, we, we were and still are extremely close and kind of, you know, fill in the spaces.
0: Right. And you guys are identical twins. Yes. Brilliant. <laughs> so I'm sure there's much fun to be had uh, in, in your lifetime so far when it comes to those.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, so we're going to hear about obviously your your introduction to running and then, you know, your your recovery through running as well, but when you guys were younger, you and your sister, were you sports people and athletes then?
1: <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> she chuckles.
1: <laughs> um very much like not athletic. And um Oh, I know what I was going to say. My dream back then was, you know, running. And, you know, like when the Olympics are on, I was like glued to all the running events. But it was something that I never told anybody. Because growing up, you know, we were told what we we're going to do, what careers we we're going to go to, you know, go to school for, you know, what what our favorite color was. <laughs> so I just didn't tell anybody.
0: So. Right, so it was a strict household then?
1: Yeah, I mean, but it was like to the extreme and I mean it was a lot more than strict. You know, we weren't allowed to go go out and do much with friends. Um, extremely, I don't know, regulated isn't the right word, but um, Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, when you, you said you were told what you were going to do as a career, what was the one assigned to you before you found your way to the one you wanted to do?
1: Um, I was told that I was basically going to go to college, graduate college, and get married and have kids. So, my major in college was home economics.
0: <laughs> gotcha. Set you up to be a great housewife.
1: Right. <laughs> Which, you know, didn't happen, but...
0: <laughs> All right. So, well, you talked about it a little bit already. So so tell me how you came across that first responder class and then kind of your journey from there into EMS.
1: Okay. Um, so I, uh, like that first responder course was just one of the electives at college. And the reason I even took it was um, I wanted to know what to do in emergency situation, you know, CPR, basic you know, bandaging or whatever. Um, And then, I don't know, I just fell in love with it, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, And so after college, I um, went to EMT school, just basic. And, oh, wait, hang on. So my sister also took the first responder class, but it was like a year later. And so she's also a paramedic. Um, but she was in paramedic school, wait. Yeah, she was in paramedic school when I was in EMT school. And so, like, you know, doing all the clinicals and all that, um, my first EMT uh, EMT clinical in the emergency room, um, like nobody showed me around, nobody, you know, nothing. And uh, they were like, can you go start this IV in whatever room? And I'm like, uh, I can't do IVs. And they would just look at me funny. <laughs> 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 and then I'm like, uh, yeah, that's my twin sister.
0: <laughs> oh, so you guys are, I'm sorry, I, I totally skate past. So you were actually on the same clinicals at the same time. So so they weren't sure if it was the medical, the EMT they were talking to.
1: Right. So, yeah, that was entertaining. Oh, and then one night, um, in her paramedic classes, one night I went to class for uh <laughs> So, you know, they'd take breaks every so often. So on break, we switched back. And then my sister went up to the instructor and was like, hey, Tony, you know, we just switched on you. And he didn't believe it until we are you know, both standing there. But, um... And then, of course, by the time I went through paramedic school, he knew us individually enough that, you know, he could tell his part. But we always, you know, threatened to do it again.
0: <laughs> so, so you so, have the potential of really messing up each other's lives, basically.
1: Oh, yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So then, what about um, uh, employment? Did you both work for the same agency after you got your medic?
1: Um, uh, Back in the day, we were both volunteers on the same service for a little bit. Um, But that was, I think, yeah, that was pretty much the only time that we were like on the same, you know, ambulance service at any given time.
0: Right. So so what made you did did you move away or why were you in in different um, ambulances after that?
1: Um, we couldn't stand each other. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she moved up back up to Michigan and was there for a little while. And then she moved to North Carolina and I was trying to find your Nick in life. And, um, I stayed in Indiana and then, um, moved around a little bit, not too much. So, and then about eight years ago, well, eight and a half years ago, things started going downhill really bad at, you know, the job I had then. So I started, you know, putting in applications everywhere, like all over the country, and was just like, well, we'll see what happens. Well, then EMSA in Tulsa um, called me for an interview, and I had never even been out here to Oklahoma before the interview. So <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? Um, so I came out here, they offered me the job like the day of the interview. And uh I had two weeks to go home, <laughs> pack everything up and move back out here. So um and basically if it didn't fit my car, it didn't come with me. Um so ever since I've been out here in wonderful Oklahoma. I was
0: gonna say you're still here now, so you must have loved it then.
1: Right. Just a little. <laughs>
0: all right so then um you work for that that new department um so kind of walk me through the the next few years of that
1: okay i was in tulsa for two years that's the length of my contract out there and then um i've always been the small town type and uh so i had a opportunity to um start working out here in veneta and i was um working for Uh, about five years before the stuff happened so
0: right so then so then uh you know obviously we're going to talk about the event but i'd love to kind of hear about how you met your partner and and kind of how he was you know earlier so see if we can find some of these you know underlying reasons of why you know what you'll then tell us happened so so when when were you guys put together
1: Um, It was about two years before the event. Um, Like, I knew him, you know, from other shifts he had worked and partners he had had. Like, him and his partner were leaving when I was coming on. So, that's, you know, how I knew him. And then I went through a couple really horrible partners. (laughs) And uh, so, when the last one, I don't remember if he got fired or quit, but... Um, I was really dreading who my next partner was going to be. And then, you know, management told me it was going to be him. And I was, you know, at that point, I was excited because <laughs> I knew he was a really good EMT. And, you know, it wasn't going to be like the previous couple.
0: Had he, had he requested to work with you? No. Okay, so that was just a chance uh, partnership. Right.
1: Yeah, he lost his paramedic partner and... Of course I lost my EMT, so we were just kind of matched up.
0: Okay, and then so when you when you worked with him for the those couple of years, I mean, were there any kind of red flags at all? Or, you know, had he had he exhibited any sort of mental health issues or was it kind of normal like any other partner?
1: Um, no, it was different. Um, he had really bad PTSD and like at the station, you know, we each had our own rooms, um there was two crews on at the time, so I mean two crews on together um, so you know, of course, four bedrooms, but anyways, that during the night, you could hear him like banging around in his room, like fighting monsters in the closet, or you know, and it was like, if we got a call in the middle of the night, <laughs> you didn't dare open that door. <laughs> You know, he just, like, banged on it and hollered at him.
0: <laughs> in case he grabbed you in the middle of his sleep.
1: Right. So, but, I mean, and it was, like, every night was like that with him. Um, He was, you know, the PTSD was that bad. Um, so, and then you know, he, and... huh?
0: I'm sorry, I was going to say, had, had he ever um told you, like, you know, what, what he was suffering, if he was getting flashbacks, or if there was a specific event he attributed it to or anything like that
1: um not specifically but he was he had been in the marines and then he had um helped with numerous like natural 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 disasters and basically he always got um got to be the one like pulling bodies out of the water and stuff so you know of course that takes a toll on you and then he had been an ems for over 20 years also so you know just probably just kind of added up
0: yeah yeah what exactly it's a cumulative thing and well i mean was he outside of, of of work was he stable or was he having you know issues there too
1: yeah he was um Like he would go to counseling and then, you know, come into work and he, it was almost like bragging almost that his therapist was scared of him, (laughs) you know, and if, I mean, to me it would seem like if a therapist is scared of a patient, why not refer him to somebody else? Yeah. But, you know, I don't know.
0: But again, if you're in a smaller town, there may not be many to choose from in the area. Something I hear a lot from, from people in rural communities is they want to get help, but there's literally, you know, one person to choose from in the entire town.
1: Right. Without, you know, driving an hour.
0: Yeah, exactly. All right. So then what about towards you? Because, I mean, you know, the, the, the day we'll talk about was a very, very violent day. Um, had he given you any reason to worry before that? Um, I
1: didn't think so at, you know, going through it, but of course, looking back, there was, there was, um, but during the, you know, in the moment, he and I, he was like a big brother to me. Um, and like, you know, being on that truck, we were just, I don't know, in sync with each other enough that we knew what the other one was going to do and, you know, vice versa. But, um, like, the, I don't know, September-ish before it happened, um, he would tell me think, okay, hang on, so he was diagnosed with cancer, um, prostate cancer, and then he went through the surgery and all that treatment for that, and, um, they told him he was in the clear, well, then, I think it was, like, August, September, you know, the year before, or, yeah, before it happened, um, He was diagnosed with cancer again. Well, that one was a little... That time was a little foggy because he wasn't real um, specific on what kind of cancer or where it was. Um, And, like, he would just say it was, you know, behind his thyroid. And, like, his, you know, just random moments, his left arm would go completely numb and that sort of thing. So... You know, and who knows if it was affecting his brain, if it was, you know, widespread, you know, who knows. Um, but that after that second diagnosis, he started saying things like, um, well, he told me, like, I, he was going to buy me a Maine Coon kitten for Christmas. And I'm like, what in the world? Those things aren't cheap. <laughs> you know, I'm like. Well, if you don't buy me a Maine Coon kitten, sure, and um, you know, just stuff like that. And of course, looking back, it's almost like he thought he had to not buy me, but buy my attention or something. Um, and you know, then he would say things like he would tell me who in his family had the keys to his safe, you know, where it had his like his living will and. You know, documents like that in it, and I'm like, this is strange. And then he would say things like, "You're gonna be well taken care of after I'm gone." Uh, okay, sure, whatever. And um, after the se- second diagnosis, he asked me to move uh closer, that just you know help him through the fight. And at the time, I was living in Tulsa, and he lived in Miami, which is like hour and a half ish apart. And the Venita is like almost halfway in between the two. So, you know, I moved down to an apartment that was right across the road from his his house, and uh, I was there about two weeks before the incident. Um, but you know, so I mean, in the moment, I didn't think any of that was strange. Well, majorly strange, anyways. Um.
0: Now, was, it, was he taking any psychiatric meds at all?
1: I highly doubt it. <laughs>
0: right. Okay.
1: It was not the type. Right. And he also carried multiple guns and knives on him wherever he went, even on even at work and on the ambulance. He always had at least, you know, one or two. Um. And, you know, management even knew about it.
0: So, so they did know about it, you said? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. And what was that? How did that... Um... Let me rephrase that. What was the policy on carrying weapons on the ambulance? Were they supposed to be?
1: No. I mean, there wasn't really any written policy. Um, but it, w- it was almost like, oh, that's Mick. So, you know, we'll just let him be him. Well, what about, you know, what about another patient going through, a like, a flashback? Or, you know, the combative patient...
0: Yeah, well exactly. You got it strapped to your hip. I mean you've seen enough police videos of, you know, criminals getting their weapons, so we're not oh, yeah. as well trained as they are. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, it it definitely can be a liability. Um all right, so then uh January twenty third, if you just wanna kinda walk us through that horrendous day.
1: Okay. Um so, you know, it started out as any other day. Um Oh, and by this time, I was getting fishy about the kitten because it was supposed to be for Christmas, and then every time it was supposed to arrive or we were supposed to go pick it up, there was some, you know, he would always tell me something happened, you know, like he had to work extra. He had worked at a meat shop when we weren't on the ambulance, Um, you know, something at work came up or the guy who was supposed to bring the kitten that we were going to meet halfway, his wife ended up in the hospital, you know, that sort of thing. Well, then January 23rd, I was starting to get, like, extremely, I don't know, Fish or no, not,
0: yeah suspicious?
1: Yes, thank you. No problem. Um, <laughs> you know, sp- yeah, that word of it all, because, you know, it just wasn't making sense. Well, on Facebook, I had... Messaged a couple different um, animal shelters just to see, you know, is this normal? I mean, do they really ship a kitten across, you know, multiple states? Because, you know, just the different things he had told me just weren't added up. Well, either one responded. So, you know, other than that, it started out as a normal, normal day. Um, well, then he texted me and said he was just going to pop in and say hi, which, you know, no big deal. I was making cookies, you know, he would pop in and get a cookie. No, you know, so that wasn't um, fishy at all. And then, so he popped in and I was laying on the floor watching TV. And, you know, he came in, we said hi and talked for a second. And then I went back to watching TV. And the next thing I know, I'm on my knees screaming, holding my head. Um, he had shot me in the back of the head with a twenty two and, you know, after that shot, he, it was almost like he had had a flashback. Um, well, that was my first thought, anyways, because he was like, what happened? Where'd you, where'd the gun come from? You know, that sort of thing. And I thought he was just gonna, you know, throw me in his truck and we were gonna go to the hospital. You know, like, I mean, big deal, but no big deal. Well, then, um, Then he shot me the second time and I'm like, yeah, this was planned. This wasn't an accident. Um, so then after the second shot, um, he took a baton stick and beat me over the head and hands. You know, I had my hands up there to, you know, well, protect myself. But, um, so he beat my hands and head till the stick broke. And of course, you know, I'm screaming crazy. Um, But then he he left, and uh, that's the last time I saw him. Um, I was told later he went across the road and shot and killed himself. But anyway, so I, you know, in my mind, I was like, well, I'm not going to die up here by myself and without a fight. So I started crawling around on the floor looking for my cell phone. Well, couldn't find it. Also later found out he had taken that. With them and destroyed um, both phones, but I was like, okay, well, what's the next plan? So I crawled down the, crawled outside down the stairs, and uh, knocked on a neighbor's door. <laughs> Freaked him out when he came to the door. I'm sure. <laughs> and I was like, can you please call nine one one? And um, so of course he did. He stayed with till the police got there. <laughs> and you know while we're Waiting, and I'm like kneeling on the sidewalk holding my head and you know I'm wearing my hoodie from the half marathon I did in Montana and my thinking was great at least I'm not wearing my Chicago marathon hoodie because I'd have to go change because you know I knew they were going to cut it off and I'd never see it again
0: <laughs> so was your favorite hoodie
1: well yes
0: because
1: it <laughs> it's you know Chicago marathon um uh yeah so then the police got there and i i remember seeing like one of the officers you know just like knees down in my you know vision or whatever um and i was like okay they're here things are being taken care of and it was like just like a peace or calmness came over me like okay it's going to be okay you know? And then of course in my mind I'm like, you just need to shut up and let the paramedics do their job instead of trying to tell them how to do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard for all of us to do.
1: Right. So <laughs> But um and then of course the next thing I knew was, you know, waking up in the hospital with the the E T tube down my throat <laughs> which made me mad too, but um but they say that course the ambulance was there it was still an active shooter scene because they didn't know where he was and I guess it took them like two hours to find him um and then of course I don't remember the ambulance at all but they said I was like alert and talking in the ambulance (laughs) I'm like well I hope I didn't say anything dumb um but then they said I had a seizure so of course you know intubated and I w- then I was flown by helicopter to Joplin, Missouri, um, and yeah.
0: <laughs> so, and then, I mean, I want to go back to to that event in a moment, but just just so we can kind of complete the picture medically, what were the injuries that you actually sustained during that attack?
1: Um, they said a skull fracture, a head bleed, um, a stroke, and the the, the seizures. And then uh, moderate to severe hearing loss.
0: Right, so, so the bullets haven't penetrated the skull. Then, luckily, they they hit it, but then got like traveled out again.
1: Um, actually, I'm not really sure because I wanted to ask. You know, it was soon after I wanted to ask, like the neurosurgeon, but I wasn't like ready to ask, so I, you know, never did. But I have I had four incisions on the back of my head. Um, so, I mean, I still have fragments in my head and my skull.
0: Right. Yeah. Cause, Cause I, mean, just, you know, for everyone listening, like you said, he went, he went over and, and completed suicide, you know, if, uh, effectively, I guess if, if that's the right word. Um, but for you to take two shots and a beating with a stick and, and, and have the frame of mind after the first time to be like, it's okay. I'll just go to hospital. And then the second time you're shot, then you're like, all right, now I'm going to have to defend myself. That only, yeah, not only speaks of, of the incredible mental resilience that you must have had, but, you know, the, the, the fact that despite such a, a violent attack, the, the parts of your brain um, that you needed to defend yourself to stay alive luckily was still intact enough for you to do that.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of it was just the, you know, training uh, and experience through, you know, EMS – You know, staying calm in a bad situation and, you know, doing what needed to be done.
0: Yeah, well, you certainly stay calm. It's it's incredible hearing you recall it because, I mean, obviously, this is a hugely traumatic thing. But it kind of parallels some of the the training that I've done and some of the people I've interviewed in yeah you know, like the special forces community um when yes. they're teaching self-defense and it's the same thing like just because you got shot doesn't mean you're gonna die and it sounds like bizarre to most people just because you got stabbed just because you got hit on the head with a, a baseball bat you know you have to fight till till the end and it's exactly the mindset you had and it's incredible to hear you tell the story and and, and how you had that fight in you which ultimately saved your life yeah
1: well, I'm just a smidgen stubborn too.
0: <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um, so, just as as a parallel for a moment, being an identical twin, especially having that close bond because of the family dynamic that you guys grew up in, did your sister have any sense that anything was wrong, like you hear some twins do?
1: Yeah. Um, that day, she had a like a really bad headache, and she said that nothing was helping it. You know, caffeine, Tylenol, like nothing. And uh then she got the phone call and she's like, Well, no one no wonder. Um, but of course, I mean it freaked her out and you know, but it was just incredible how like, you know, all her friends and then our extended family and whoever just chipped in and, you know, helped her get a plane ticket and you know, of course she has um a bunch of fur babies and people just jumped in to you know what well, watch and take care of them. And then I guess she was on a plane like the next day, I guess it was. Um,
0: Brilliant. Now you, you hear obviously in our associated professions, that brotherhood, that sisterhood, what about your agency? Did they all step up and, and, uh, you know, take care of you as well?
1: Yeah, my, I guess bosses were there the night of, and of course, you know, the days following and, um, uh, they helped me with, you know, medical expenses and health insurance and, you know, and then that continued for several months. Um, you know, they gave me, um, money to help me get by for a little while. You know, it was just totally incredible. I had like friends and coworkers step up and offer me a place to go home after the hospital. Cause you know, I couldn't be on my own. Um, So, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I heard you talk about this in, in another interview, which is why I'm kind of bringing it up again. But, you know, the core of, of this whole podcast is, you know, obviously people's health and, and mental health, but it's really compassion and kindness and, and gratitude. So, you know, your your close family, your, your parents, when this happened to you, um, what was their response?
1: Um, of course, they were, you know, notified uh, pretty much right away, I, I, I was told, but, um, and they were told, well, they claim they were told that, um, I just had like abrasions to the back of my head and a few broken fingers. Well, of course with, I mean, for one, it's common sense, but with dad experience, dad's experience, you know, being a medic, he would know better, but you know, you don't get, intubated, on a vent, in ICU for, you know, abrasions to the back of the head.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, it wasn't a skateboarding accident either. You were shot and beaten. So regardless of the injuries, it doesn't matter. You were attacked, so that in itself should have been enough.
1: Yeah, it should have been, hey, we're on a plane. We'll be there, you know. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm, like, fighting for my life. The doctors all said I wasn't going to make it. And they're just sitting up there in their comfy recliners up in Montana you know um and my of course when my sister got or got to the hospital you know she was talking to them and keeping them informed and you know she even told them that you know I was circling the drain and wasn't expected to survive and you know again told them how bad it was and co-workers and management t- you know talked to them and the nurses you know so you know, even if there was giving them the benefit of the doubt, even if there was, you know, a um well, forgot what I was gonna say. Um like mis miscommunication, you know, the first time or two could first yeah, time first conversation or two, then you know, with the multiple conversations it would have been cleared up.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's just sad to hear because so many of the issues that, you know, we come across in, in the world in general, um, a lot of them are, you know, can be fixed by parenting. And, you know, this, again, is a glaring thing is when your son or daughter needs you the most, if you're not there, you really need to look in the mirror. And ask yourself, you know, what kind of person you are, because I get it, you know, if if you're an addict and and you stay with them and stay with them and stay with them and and eventually you just said enough is enough. That's that's one thing. I understand that. But, you know, with with what happened to you, there's no excuse that that everyone shouldn't have been, you know, around, especially like you said, what what if you did circle the drain? What if that was it? And, And then, you know, regret. I think it was Anne Frank that said people send far more flowers at funerals than they do when people are alive, and it's true, that's, that's that regret piece. Yep, very much so. Yeah. All right, so then, well, you, you talked about, you know, being close to death, so let's focus on on the physical side first. What was, uh, you know, what was your healing like physically?
1: Um. Well, rough, of course, but, um. like, at times I felt like I've had to fight for, you know, everything, like, In the hospital, I complained about my hearing being muffled. And the response I got was, oh, give it it time. It'll heal. It's from the, you know, gunshots. Well, of course it is, but. um.
0: (laughs) It's a real Sherlock Holmes in that hospital, huh?
1: (laughs) Right. No, stuff like that. And then, um, like, fighting to find a neurologist that there wasn't a twelve month wait to see, and you know just some of it was little stuff, some of it was you know bigger stuff like that, but um but even with that, it was like everything I needed um was taken care of, you know, from like copays for doctor visits to medication to um to meals to I'd have friends come pick me up just to get me out of the house, you know
0: that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting hearing you say the copay thing, because one area that I talk about on this show sometimes is where I grew up in England, we had national healthcare. So you get attacked and almost murdered. I can't imagine then having to worry about medical bills on top of the recovery that you're doing, you know? And I think that's that's another area where the model that we use here may not be the most uh, humanitarian of models, you know what I mean? Because it seems to be the people that are in accidents, the people that get terminal diseases, those are the ones that are hit with these huge bills, which just compounds the issue even more.
1: Right, and then, you know, end up homeless or, you know, whatever.
0: Yeah, they're all taking their lives sometimes. It's just, you know, it's just the, the final nail in the coffin for them. Right, so... um what about mentally, just just because I know we're going to talk about racing, and I, I realize we hadn't even talked about how you got into running, so we need to kind of go back in a minute but um the the first couple of weeks, how was that mentally for you from an you know completely intact paramedic to as you were saying, waking up with a tube in your throat <laughs> um, yeah.
1: um I don't know some of it seems like almost like a dream or well, nightmare. You know, and I kept feeling like I was gonna wake up and it you know, everything would be okay. Um and it you know, I didn't really know what would happen. Nobody really did about as far as like recovery and, you know, where I'd be a year down the road or five years. Um and it was tough not getting answers, you know. And Like in the hospital, I remember my neurosurgeon being in there, and I asked him when I could start training for a marathon. And he just, you know, was like dumbfounded and speechless and didn't know what to say.
0: Probably never (laughs) been asked that before in in the middle of a hospital.
1: (laughs) And, you know, I knew I was, you know, messed up. And I was like, um, like beyond super dizzy. Um, So, in the hospital, they got, they brought me this walker that had, that has, like, the armrest on it. And once they brought me that, there was, like, no stopping. I was doing, like, a zillion laps in the, you know, on the floor and, you know, all this stuff. So, I mean, that part greatly helped my mental state, you know, just, well, everything. Um... You know, and then I go home with um coworkers and, you know, I still don't know, of course, what's going to happen. And mentally, I mean, they got me into starting counseling right away. I didn't have a choice about that one, of course. <laughs> you know, I don't know. And I was frustrated because, well, I'm still frustrated, but because I know, um, you know, where I used to be and where I am, you know, months after and even now and it's frustrating because it's so there's like like a large space in between um so yeah
0: right well well then let's talk about you know the, the positive thing in your life before one of your one of your positive um you know pillars of your life and then and then we'll talk about your incredible return to that so you were a young lady, you're dreaming of running, you're obviously in in a kind of family infrastructure where that wasn't going to be encouraged because you had to learn how to cook. <laughs> um so <laughs> right. so tell me how you found running and then kind of where you were right before the incident as far as your your distances and the races that you were running.
1: Okay. Um so like the dream of running was, you know, of course all, always in the back of my head. Um well, then I moved out here to Oklahoma and, you know, working in Tulsa. And I had a EMT partner that asked me if I would run a 5K with her. <laughs> and I, like, literally just busted up laughing. Because, you know, at that point I was like, yeah, me run. You know, the usual response, me run. If I, you see me running, you better run too. And um, this girl's asthma was like, you know, you look at her funny and she's having an asthma attack. So I was thinking, how's that going to happen? Well, so we, you know, signed up, started training, which was totally horrible. Um,
0: the first, well, first, uh, first few weeks are always horrible, no matter what you're starting.
1: Right. And then, you know, it's, what am I doing? I can do this? Oh, yes, I can do this, you know. So we did, uh, the 5K was going to be the sweetheart run in February. Um. And she picked it just because she liked the charity that the money was going to. And uh, so, you know, we kept training. Well, then, like a couple of weeks before, she, you know, she's like, I'm not going to do it. I'm like, what? So I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, this is your fault that I'm even doing this. So you better be there to cheer me on. <laughs> so, of course, it's like you know, freezing cold outside, and I was dressed for, like, you know, being a speedy runner or not having a clue what I was doing, (laughs) and, um, so, you know, of course, I was, like, scared, spitless, and nervous, and excited, and, you know, um, but, like, I ran that first race, and crossing that finish line was just, you know... That's the addicting part. Um, and, of course, the bling. But, um, And then it just, you know, went on from there. I did a ton of 5K races um, by myself. You know, sometimes I'd have somebody there cheering me on. But, the you know, actual running the race was by myself. And then I, um, you know, after several of those, I was like, okay, it's time to, you know, bump it up. So I did a few 10 K's and then of course, you know, it's like, well, if I can do a 10 K, I can do a half marathon. Absolutely. <laughs> right. I've just been being a slacker all this time. <laughs> <laughs> um So my first, yeah, my first half marathon was route 66 in Tulsa. And I don't remember how many years ago, but um, probably, six or something like that um but that was my first half marathon and um of course that's addicting too so I started doing a bunch of half marathons and then I got this like you know crazy idea of oh I can do a half marathon in every state so that's still a work in progress but after several several half marathons I was like well I can do a full marathon well then Route 66 in Tulsa is like the only race I could find that had a like a special medal for you know that says my first marathon so I was like well that's gonna be the one you know so I you know signed up got ready for it oh it was like totally horrible um I don't even remember what my time was I think it was like six or seven
0: hours that's somewhere. not horrible though because you ran 26 miles so
1: there's <laughs> right. nothing
0: horrible about it
1: yeah i think it, yeah i think it was like seven hours and something so um you know of course like across the finish line and it's exhilarating but then you know an hour af- after you finish it's you know miserable and give me food because i'm going to eat everything you know in sight and I'm never gonna do this again, and <laughs> so, you know. But then two days later, I'm looking for the next one. Um, so it just kind of went from there, you know. Kept doing half marathons, and then I um signed up and got into the Chicago Marathon. Well, like a well, I don't know, nine, ten months. Um, before the Chicago Marathon, I started working with a personal trainer and, um, you know, just for extra help. Well, I ended up taking almost an hour off my marathon t- time in the Chicago Marathon. So that was pretty exciting.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, no, just to stop you for a moment. So you, we all know a lot of our peers in, you know, police, fire, EMS, especially as we get into our careers a little bit. Um, you know that there's there's a weight gain. Did you have significant change in in your body composition as well when you went from basically sedentary all the way through to a marathon runner?
1: Yes, because you know sometimes you only have time to grab gas gas station food, and
0: you know exactly.
1: You know, so um, but like over well over time of just learning more about running, and you know. Uh, researching it more and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I, you know, was like, okay, if I'm going to keep doing this racing thing, I can't keep eating, you know, potato chips and hot dogs.
0: Yeah, well, that's what's amazing about getting a goal. I just uh, interviewed Joe DeSena, who's the the uh, creator of the Spartan races. Um, and that's one of the things that I see with, with those and marathons and triathlons and any event like that is once you have a goal to train for, then it gives you a reason to exercise and it does make you look at your food and you realize that some of it is not fuel anymore. It's actually making you worse. So, just right. by having that goal of a marathon or whatever you choose to do is such a powerful tool to change some things in your life as well.
1: It is because, you know, I'd finish like a big race and then I'd go looking for more because if I wasn't signed up for any races, then what's the motivation?
0: Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And even if, even if you take your job seriously, you know, like a, um, you know, like a lot of us do, you still don't have that tangible goal. You want to be quote unquote ready as we all do. But I think those are great things to throw in there just to give you that, you know, that, that, that short term goal. And then when, like you said, when you get there, you look around and go, right, what next? Oh, you know what, I'm going to go swim, you know, whatever it is, but just something tangible to keep, keep pushing you to the next level. Right right so so before the event then so basically you were at a point where you were fully able of running running a full marathon yes okay so after the event because i I think this is just such a testament and again i think we've already got got an idea of who you are the way you describe the attack and and how you fought back but um you were discharged from the hospital after eight days which in itself is incredible to me but three weeks after that um tell me what you decided to do because you know after being shot in the head twice and beaten almost to death is uh (laughs) clearly was wasn't wasn't that bad uh, you know according to your mindset so what was it that you decided to to choose as far as those goals
1: um well it was of course this happened in january and my um well my running anniversary race basically is of course in february and i've um done that race every year since you know just to. Uh, remember where I came from and celebrate where I am and, you know, all that jazz. But so um, I think I was still even in the hospital. And I started talking about doing this 5K. And, you know, of course, the doctors were like, is this for real? Is this person out of her head? You know,
0: <laughs> no pun intended.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. So then my um, primary care doctor He's a former runner himself, so he, like, totally understood, you know, my mindset and why I needed to do it and all that. But, so he's, like, so I told him, I w- I'm walking this race. And he's, like, of course, he gave me the usual, you know, crazy look. But he's, like, well, if you're going to do this, you need to have friends walking with you. You need to have a wheelchair um, available in case you need it. Um and there was, like, oh, I had to use my walker, and there was a couple other ones, but, like, I had, I think it was, like, eight or nine friends, like, volunteer to walk with me, and, like, most of most of them weren't even runners themselves, and, um, so, yeah, so, anyway, so, this 5K, I, um, yeah, I walked it with my walker, and that, it that was probably, crossing the finish line was probably bigger than, anything you know bigger than my first race at all bigger than my first marathon because I you know I was actually doing it and I wasn't supposed to be able to do this and um you know and then like my friend Julie she's an ER nurse out here but she did it with me and uh so we get across the finish line and you know like the uh the sobs that come with you know right before a good cry <laughs> so we give each other a hug and i start doing that and she's like don't cry don't cry or i'm gonna cry too well then you know you know how that goes <laughs> so it, it was just totally exhilarating
0: i'm sure now, now just to, again to paint the picture so you're talking about walker obviously you had you know the the injuries your defensive wounds and then the the injuries to your head what were the deficits that you were left with that you had to overcome during that race
1: um well extreme exhaustion uh weakness um and you know still major dizziness um and i think physically that was the biggest thing
0: yeah. Yeah. I and mean, that in itself, I'm sure was horrendous. I had a guest, a friend of mine who was in a horrendous car crash that almost killed her. Um, and she referred to the dizziness as, as one of the worst injuries. Cause she said, when I closed my eyes, I didn't know if I was standing up or lying down. And, and yeah. I, I can't imagine, you know, that feeling. It must be awful. So to overcome that, to be able to, you know, move your still battered and bruised body over five kilometers is, is absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, and both hands and arms were still like majorly bandaged up and um oh, this is funny. So the I guess the race director um of that race is a uh, like uh one of the managers for one of the Fleet Feet stores out here. <laughs> and uh well, Julie and I went to go get her a pair of couple pairs of running shoes a couple weeks ago, so we got talking you know, about the 5K and um, what I'd been through. And anyway, so this lady's like, I remember you. You were Wonder Woman and the Wonder Woman walker. And she's like, she said that when I was, you know, walking that race, she's like, I had a ton of people come up to me and ask me if, you know, you were supposed to be in there and if you were going to be okay. and <laughs> <laughs> so, How about yeah, that they-
0: was- but Wonder Woman is a good, a good name, and I know that that's been, you know, your thing now when you race. But it's true. I mean, even before you step foot on that course, I think, you know, your your life path and definitely, you know, following that events, um, you know, inspire way more than a golden lasso and short shorts.
1: <laughs> Pretty much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, but that was the so the five k was just the, the the first step though. So tell me, race wise, the journey that you've been on since then.
1: Okay. Um, so after that, um, the community here had like fundraisers for me. And of course, you know, one of them included a 5k. Um, so I did that 5k and then, um, let me think. Oh, I know what it was. The Cincinnati flying pig races. I had signed up for those like the year before the incident and um of course then this the stuff happened and i had to defer those races so <laughs> you know being the stubborn one and hard-headed one that i am um i got a friend to drive me out there i can't drive cuz of seizures but um he drove me out to cincinnati and i did and my sister met us up there and oh this is pretty cool too she was not a runner well, she's still not a runner, but, um, like before this stuff happened, she was—you know—she vowed that she was never going to do a, you know, even a five k. <laughs> well, it's in those Cincinnati races, you know. It's a, well, I did the, like, extra chili and cheese or whatever it's called, but it was a one mile, a five k, a ten k, and then the half marathon. And um, she did the. One mile, the five k, and the ten take ten k completely with me, and then a good chunk of the half.
0: Oh, brilliant! <laughs> from from not running at all,
1: right? So, and of course, she hadn't trained for any of this either. So <laughs> she's like, "What have you got me into?" And um, but yeah, so I did those races, and then um, and like all with my walk all with my walker, um, just, you know, yeah, so, then I did the half marathon, the Route Route 66 half marathon in November, that's in Tulsa, um, and I did that with my walker, and of course, at that point, my next goal was to do the half marathon this coming November without my walker, but that's not gonna happen, that's a whole nother, you know, whatever, um, but anyway, so then I did that half. And then this last March, <laughs> I did the Little Rock uh, full marathon. And um, that one was also one I had to defer because of the incident. So I'm like, it's already paid for. I'm already signed up. Of course it's going to happen.
0: <laughs> well, why not?
1: <laughs> you know? So, and then, well, my friend Julie... She, you know, she's she's a runner. She's done half marathons. Well, she always vowed she was never going to do a full, a full marathon. Well, then I asked her to, you know, do it with me because I had to have somebody train and walk with me. And, um, <laughs> so long story short, she did the Little Rock Marathon with me. Um, and that was just, oh, that's up there with the... 5k after the incident
0: oh i'm sure i'm sure yeah because before right before the incident you were proud of yourself completely able-bodied doing doing the uh the full marathon here you are post-injury with a walker doing a full marathon
1: (laughs) all right
0: all right well (laughs) you mentioned about with the walker now you've done some races without now is that right
1: um yeah like just the 5k you know that length much longer than that i have to use the walker and um, now I've I've started to backtrack. Well, I have backtracked a lot. So now, even for a five k, I have to use my walker. But I've had some like major issues with hypotension and you know stuff that's showing up now and you know from the head injury.
0: Right, so. uh, are these things that they think they're going to be able to reverse. Are you going to be able to get back towards the the direction you were going before? Uh not a clue okay because
1: it's too early to know
0: yeah well because you hear i mean amazing things about about neurons about nerves that you know we all assume that once they're gone they're gone but then you know you're hearing now these neural pathways being reconnected so hopefully you know that that will will be the case with you because as you said right before that moment you know you were a pretty high level so hopefully the the muscle memory will will promote that
1: Right, because we don't have time for this continued walking nonsense. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think it's pretty good in the meantime. I got to say, but uh, now you're gonna have to yep. do like one of those hundred mile death death races with your walker through the desert with like sand tires on it.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> I did find like pretty big like road I don't know what they're called road tires for walkers on Amazon though.
0: <laughs> there you go. It's got to step up the the hardware instead. Right. So. <laughs> All right, so then, um, one more thing I want to touch on before we go to some some wrap up questions is um one of one of the questions I have is what do you do to decompress, but this kind of ties in a little bit um when did you start writing poetry and 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 did you find a therapeutic element of that offloading some of the mental trauma
1: yeah, um, I'd always loved writing, but it had never you know it didn't come out right, and I was never really um that gun ho about it. Um, and then the incident happened and of course I'm like I don't know, splatter brained and don't know what to deal don't know how to deal with all those emotions and, you know, mess inside my head and whatever. So then, you know, it was like I was laying in bed one night and just like actual meaningful thoughts started forming in my head and I was like, well, I need to write these down and then that started the whole flow of the whole poetry thing. And it's like, um, even now when I get, um, stressed or, I don't know, anything, I guess, um, I'll just start writing and, you know, I don't know where it's gonna go, you know, the poem itself, and it just, you know, comes out. So, it's kind of been a, um stress reliever but i can go back and you know reread stuff and see you know or remember where i was at that moment and see how far i've come and you know i know it's encouraging to others but it's also like encouragement to me too
0: yeah yeah well i think that's that's exactly it with people who write you know whether it's songs podcasts even um You know, you're ultimately telling your story, but there's so much value in sharing those stories. And that's why I love this medium, for example, is we're having this conversation and selfishly, like, you know, when we spoke the first time on the phone, I got to hear your story. But now, hopefully, thousands and thousands of people will hear your story and, and, you know, that's going to then impact their life, too, the same way as your poetry will. Right. Brilliant. Alright, well then, talking of that, so the the first of the closing questions I love to ask people, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we talked about today, or something completely different. Um, <laughs> not really. Not really. Is there a, a poet that you like? An author?
1: Um, not really. I, like, even before I started writing, I never really read poetry. I always thought, like, you know, outside of like high school literature class, I always pictured poetry as, you know, that's what lovebirds read to each other. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I don't, I'm, I don't really have a, you know, favorite author.
0: So the Brady Pre-Hospital Care textbook is not one of your favorite reads, then. No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's move to another medium then. So what about movies? Do you have a favorite movie?
1: Yes. The Notebook.
0: The Notebook is a great movie. Actually, the reason I'm married is because I had seen The Notebook, so I was able to understand the quote that my wife put on a Match.com profile that led to a date that led to marriage. So there you go. (laughs) Great movie. (laughs)
1: And what a, what
0: about for you? Is there any significance for that movie, or just the fact that it's a really good film?
1: Um, I, I mean, I liked it before the incident, but now it's like, I don't know. I' not sure why, but I it's just more yeah. It's just more meaningful.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Um, yeah. Well, then, what about? Is there a documentary that you've seen that you love? Do you ever watch those? Um, <laughs> not really. No, that's fine. No problem. No problem at all. Either, you know, when I ask these questions, again, it's the same thing. You know, some people have got 10 books they have to narrow down, you know, and other people are like, I haven't read since I was six. So, <laughs> um, all right. So the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world?
1: Um... Probably my sister. Yeah. Because she's been, you know, of course, been in EMS close to the same amount of time. But, you know, in over 20 years. And, you know, of course, we've seen different things. She's had a lot of um, bad pediatric calls. And, you know, plus she's in North Carolina. So different perspective, different types of services and the way, you know, they're running stuff, and, um, she's helping, right now she's helping to, um, uh, I don't know, find or come up with resources for EMS as far as, like, PTSD resources and, um, even, like, training, um, emotional support animals for EMS, um, you know, all that jazz. She's, like, working with people to you know, create resources out there basically.
0: Excellent. Whereabouts in North Carolina is she based?
1: Uh, Lexington.
0: Okay. So I, know, I'm, she, I was going to say, she, I know, I'm sorry. I know several people up there who have really done a great job of doing that. So I need to connect you with them so that, um, she maybe can find some resources with them as well.
1: Okay. Awesome. She, uh, even now she harasses me that I'm a, air head and a metal head because of the you know of course air that comes in for a skull fracture and that I still have metal pieces in my head.
0: That's true, you are. Do you have any problems going through uh security? <laughs> not
1: Is, so far. Doesn't
0: beep yet. <laughs>
1: right.
0: Alright, so then the uh we talk about poetry. Is there anything else that you do to decompress when you're not racing?
1: Um oh yeah. I volunteer I've um just like in the ER here, it's a little, you know, a little hospital. But I just volunteer in the ER like one night a week when I, you know, um, can make it, you know, because of health stuff. But, um, and it's like four hours a night, but it's something that still makes me, you know, so useful and gives me something to do, makes me get out of the house, you know. Um, So there's that. And then... I have a, (laughs) I have a neighbor, she's uh, in her 80s and like 94 pounds, Um, but like really feisty and, you know, so I go over there and help her a lot and, you know, she keeps me in line and I try to keep her in line, Um, but um, I got to know her through, well, running calls on the ambulance because when her husband was still alive, he was a frequent flyer diabetic And, um, he also had lung cancer, so when he started going downhill, I'd come over, you know, every shift just to check on them and see if she needed anything. And then, um, after he passed, it, you know, just just continued, and then when the incident happened, she's like, as soon as you can, you need to get your butt over here. (laughs) So, you know, helping her is, uh... Uh, giving me, well, that's not coming out right. Anyway, she's like one of my, one of the purposes that I'm still around, you know. So that's helped me a lot. The volunteering's help a lot.
0: I don't know. Yeah, no, and, and I totally understand yep. what you're saying. And that's what I found with a lot of people that have come on the show that have been through mental trauma, physical trauma, obviously physical is a, a mental element as well. But it's, you know, when they find that purpose, you know, whether it's the, you know, we're talking about the races earlier, but, you know, you're volunteering at the hospital, you've got a, a neighbor that you're helping out. And I think that's such a powerful thing for anyone to find, especially in your position where you were the rescuer and then that was snatched from you. So if you clung purely on the identity of being Bonnie the paramedic, you know, you would have been really spiraling but you you immediately found other places to help and I think that's that's a very very positive thing that a lot of people that are doing well have found
1: right and you know I'd rather just stay in the house and the lights turned off and not do anything but you know I've kind of made my life so that I can't you know I mean I have days that I can but it's not like weeks on end
0: yeah yeah well that's that's a really you know powerful thing to hear is you know so so that is there the the desire to to kind of um be inert not not do anything with your day but you're putting things in place in your life that force you to walk out the door which i'm sure ultimately once you're there you're glad that you did
1: right yep absolutely
0: Brilliant. All right. Well, um, before we end this, let's um, let's find out where people can reach out to you. So, after hearing a story, do you well, firstly where can they find your poems?
1: Um, on Facebook, it's called Bees, and it's the letter B apostrophe ww Journey.
0: Brilliant. So, yep. Okay, and if they want to reach out to you, you're on Facebook as well. Yes. Brilliant. And then any other uh websites or other social media
1: um on instagram it's a bonbon marathoner
0: brilliant i don't think we connect on instagram so i gotta hit you up in a moment and we'll we'll get that done bonbon marathoner okay well bonnie i just want to say thank you so much i mean it never fails to amaze me the the things that our fellow humans you know go through and um you know, the resiliency that you see through so many of these men and women that you've had on and you absolutely are in the walk. I mean, you, you know, we're, we're a servant before, you know, we were, we were, you were in the profession that we love, you know, serving others. And then, and then you had this happen to you. Um, but you know, you're out at it again. And I, I think it's completely inspirational. And I, I, I hope that you are going to see that upturn again. And, you know, soon we'll be watching you do a full marathon without your walker.
1: All right. Um, You know, and one thing I've learned through this is that, you know, you can go through the darkest moments imaginable and uh, you can still come out on the other side and, you know, but of course in the, when you're in the midst of it, you don't think you're going to get there. And I've learned that, you know, to take it five minutes at a time and, you know, then you get through first five minutes and you look back and you're like, hey, I just did that. I think I might be able to do another five, you know, and then it continues. And, you know, so I've, um, I don't know, I guess created this mantra that it's never give in, never give up for its five minutes at a time. And that's, you know, I like, yeah, on a daily basis, I have to remind myself of that, you know, and, you know, it might be dark now, but, you know, what's around the corner,
0: yeah, well, that's true. I mean, uh, to, to use a cheesy metaphor, you know, the sun will rise again. And I know with with, with the five-minute thing, I've heard several um, people that have been through special operations selection processes, you know, like BUDS and Hell Week and all those, um, where they say the same thing, just take one more step, one more step, and you just keep moving forward. Because I think we underestimate ourselves physically we underestimate ourselves mentally and that's what i love hearing people like you telling their story is when we're in our own dark place and and everyone has their own you know darkness their own shadows in their life but when you can watch other people getting through their battle their battle may seem less than you it may seem far more extreme and obviously yours is is pretty extreme um but if everyone is saying the same message just keep moving forward you will look back and you will be out the other end I think the more collectively we hear that, the more other people are then going to learn from your incredible journey too. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate appreciate you telling the story. I'm I'm sure it can't be easy to to recount, you know, the the bad part. Um, but you are an inspiration, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where your journey takes you next.
1: Well, thanks for having me.